this morning, I want you to picture with me that we're all going to make a painting together. And uh, we're all going to make a painting today, everyone individually. And let's say that we agreed on, an artist gave us 12 distinctive things that had to be in our painting. Uh, maybe there's going to be, there has to be a house, and there's got to be a sky, and there's got to be a tree and a dog and a family and a whatever, a shed or something, right? There's 12 things. And we're all going to do this painting. It doesn't matter if you're good at drawing or not. We're all going to do it. And let's say we all do that together. What we might find, there might be some pictures that looked kind of similar, but we would find that if we all did that, our pictures would come out quite different. But as long as they had the same essential elements, they would be complete based on the standard that we created, right? So what would be interesting was if one person interpreted, well, I had to have a sky, they might say, well, I pictured a night sky. So there's a moon. Somebody else pictured the daytime and there's a sun. When I said tree, maybe somebody thought of an avocado tree because they're really hungry, and somebody else thought of an oak tree. You kind of get what I'm kind of painting here, that the pictures would come out different. Yet if they had those 12 essentials, our creed, so to speak, they would still be complete, right? So let me give you an example. Here's a picture of the Mona Lisa. We've all seen this picture before. Look at that, right? I don't know much about art, but that's the Mona Lisa, right? Let me show you the next slide. Here's a bunch of variations on the Mona Lisa. Quite different, right? That's probably what it would have looked like if we tried to draw it. But when you look at all of them, because you've seen the original, you know what it's a picture of, don't you? You know there's something distinct, even in kind of the weirdest ones, that still triggers your mind to say there's some essential to the original artwork that's in there, right? This morning, as we look at the creed, as we're continuing this series, what I want to suggest to us today is that the creed is kind of the essentials, the orthodox essentials of the Christian faith. It doesn't, it doesn't have everything in it. It's not going to say everything about God. But it's going to say, hey, here's these things that the church over history has said. You really need these things. And if you have these things, then essentially you're, you're part of the family of God. And the way that churches express that can start to look different. Because we're not the only church in the world that holds to the Apostles' Creed. Most Protestant churches across the world would hold to the Apostles' Creed. Lutherans and Methodists and evangelicals and all the other it's that are out there and the catholic church holds to the apostles creed and the anglican church right there's churches across the globe that all kind of say hey this thing really matters and the way it plays out is the pictures can look different and i'm not saying that we can't get into trouble with all these things but i want us to say today as we look at the creed we either look at a creed like this or even the scriptures as a way to say well let's decide who's in and out of the club or we look at the scriptures and say, this is the greatest story on earth. How do we invite as many people possible into it? And the creed as we walk through this is going to show us, here's some essentials that all of us need to know. And what we just might find is that the creed is showing the scriptures to be way more unifying than we think. We live in a world and in a church world that is so divided. So divided. And I think the creed and really the scriptures that they speak to 
offer us a picture that says, no, we can actually learn to be unified in and through Jesus Christ that we're going to look at today. So that's kind of the journey that we're going to go on. We're going to bounce around a lot. I'm going to use this idea of a metaphor of a picture. We're painting a picture today, okay? And today it's on Jesus, Jesus the Son, and we're going to cover half of it. Next week, Pastor Don's going to carry the rest of it, so we're going to get halfway through. But the first thing that we're going to see today is that our painting, if we're painting this picture of who Jesus is, it has to show, well, who he is. Who is Jesus? And sometimes that's a really, like, of course I know who Jesus is, but it's not always as simple to define as we would always think. The creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We're going to kind of walk through this. I want to just kind of unpack it. We can't explain everything, but I want us to start to think about why would the authors of this creed put this in there? Why is this essential to our painting? Why is it essential? So who is Jesus? Well, it says first that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Jesus is the king. He's the king of the Jews. Remember, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. This king who was going to come reestablish God's kingdom. And this is the message that we see getting proclaimed to the apostles after Jesus dies. In Acts 5.42, it says this, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They were preaching he's the Messiah. He's the king. A kingdom had come and that king was Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of Israel's God, Yahweh. See, they were used to the gospel going out, Caesar's gospel going out saying, I have the good news. They were used to other kings saying, here's the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus comes on and says, no, 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 no. There's a new kingdom in town. And there's a new king. And his name is Jesus. And he's the king of the Jews. And this king has adopted all of us into his family. Because most of us probably aren't Jewish. Most of us probably aren't Israelites. We have been adopted into God's king. To believe in Jesus Christ means that we believe that Jesus is king. It is essential to our painting of Jesus. If we don't have him as king, the picture's not complete. We also learn that Jesus is the son. Jesus is the only son of God. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. I don't know how that works. I'm not here to explain this perfectly, but I can tell you that the scriptures and the creeds say that is absolutely essential to understanding who Jesus is. Listen to this. There's another creed called the Nicene Creed, which is bigger than the Apostles' Creed. And they talk about it like this, and I think this will be on the screen. Speaking of Jesus, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. It clears it right up, right? <laughs> it's, re it's really beautifully written. I'm not sure how to explain that besides to say that Jesus is from God. He's of the same makeup as God is. Now, this is what I would say to us if you're like me. We are using metaphor to try to understand things that are inexpressible. Jesus is God's son, but it's not in the same way that I'm a son to my own father because my father has different authority and power, and Jesus has the same power kind of in authority as the father. It's not exactly the same. The scriptures give us pictures of how do we, how do we make sense of God 
and Jesus and this father-son relationship is a thing that we can kind of wrap our heads around, but it still doesn't quite get at what it all is. Because Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used by his own advantage. Jesus is equal to God in all things. His sonship doesn't make him any less God. Does that make sense? I have more power than my kids because I'm bigger than them and I'm their father. Jesus and God have a little bit of a different dynamic than I have with my sons. But Jesus is God. Colossians 1, 5, 1, 15 says that Jesus is the express image of God. So like if we were to see God, we would see Jesus. This Jesus that we've been singing about this morning is incredible. And he, has, he is uniquely the son of God. He is the only son of God. We are called sons and daughters of the king, right? But Jesus's relationship with God is different than that. He is uniquely the son of God. So he's the Messiah. He's the son. He's also Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's our Lord, the creed says. He has this supernatural authority over humans. That's what that word Lord speaks to. Jesus is in charge in the same way that God is. So we talk about God being sovereign. When we say that, we are saying that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is in control. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, listen to this, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus sustains as Lord all thing by his powerful word. Now, we just went through the story, right? I know that we remember everything that we read from Genesis to Revelation. But at the very beginning, we see someone else speaking with the powerful word. God. God creates with his, with his breath, with his word. The writer of Hebrews, the creed is saying, that's, that's the same essence of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is creator. Jesus has authority over all things. So he's Messiah. He's the Son of God. And he is Lord. That is who he is. If our painting doesn't have that, then our painting's not complete. Is there more to Jesus than that? Absolutely. But if we don't have those three things, then our painting's going to look a little bit weird and it's not going to make it. The second thing that we have to see, our painting must show where Jesus comes from. We need a good, like, where are you from, right? Who your parents are matter. We ask this question all the time when we talk to people. Where are you from? Who's your brothers and sisters? We want to try to make connections, right? Where is Jesus from? This is where it gets, <laughs> this where it gets really kind of otherworldly because we can't really explain all these things perfectly. The, the creed says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. There's a lot there. Jesus was conceived. The, the Nicene Creed said that he was begotten. We don't really like use that word a lot. I don't use that word a lot. It means kind of like one and only. He, he's the one and only son. He was begotten. He comes from God somehow. In Philippians, it says that he took on the nature of a man. He was in the appearance of a human. We're dancing around this question, which is, how can God become a man and still be God? How is that possible? How does that work? 
I don't know <laughs> fully. I don't think anybody here does. What's amazing is the creed and the scriptures are not trying to, uh, how do I say this? They're not trying to explain that fully. See, if we look at the Bible as like, the Bible is going to give me every answer for life, it's going to explain every single thing about God and about humans, we are going to be disappointed at some point. The Bible is not just an answer book. It has answers. It has all those things. But what it's really doing is telling the redemptive story of God. It's sharing about who God is and who we are and how we find our place in his world. It's his story. The scriptures are not just, and the creed is not just explanatory. We, this is a statement of belief. This is what we believe. It's going to take faith for us to believe, ultimately, that Jesus is all these things. But Jesus being conceived, being born, is important because if you're not conceived, you can't be born. And I don't want to get into like a conversation about, you know, all that stuff. But if you're not conceived, you can't be born. And Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is where we get into who's his dad. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. And we might be like, how does that work? And Mary, his mother, had the same question. When she learns that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, she says this in Luke 135, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin, I've never been with a man. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of of God. So Mary was is, is like, how is, how is this going to work? You know, this is a little bit sketchy, right? She has questions just like we do. That makes me feel better. In the ancient world, lineage was passed down through your father. If you read through the Old Testament, you read like the genealogies, it's always like blank was the son of blank and the son of blank and the father of blank and the, it's all the men. It's passed down through the father's. That's when we talk about, when Paul talks about sin and stuff in, in the New Testament, he's talking about Adam. Adam's line brings us our sin. Our, our sin and our shame, they, the way they thought about it, was passed down through the Father. So if Jesus' biological father is a man, we have a problem, don't we? Because then Jesus would have sin. He'd have shame. He, well, he's going to get suffering, but he'd have our kind of sin suffering that has to do with our sin. Jesus' father can't be a regular man because then there's a massive problem in his ability to pay for our sins. See, Jesus' father is God. Jesus' DNA, his lineage, his heritage is from God the Father. He's of the same essence of the Father. That's why it's in this creed. Jesus isn't just a man. He's also God. And God is his father. And though it's difficult to, like, understand, I'm so grateful that it's true. Because we're all sitting here today because of it. And he's born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is born. He has to be born. If you're not born, then you're not human. Everybody here was born, I'm pretty sure. Right? All the moms are like, yes, they were born. Trust me. Right? I know it's Father's Day, but um, anyways. Jesus was born. He was physically human, right? This is the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God becoming human. Jesus was human. So for all you kids out there, Jesus had to do the stuff you guys do. He had to listen to his parents. 
He had to like dress up nicer for church and wear button-up shirts and all that stuff. Like you can't wear that, you know. Jesus had to eat. He slept. Jesus probably, I mean, for sure he had to go to the bathroom, right? Jesus probably got acne as a kid, I'm, I'm assuming, right? Jesus had to, he had to get a job. He, had to, he was a human being. I think he would have laughed at jokes. I think Jesus probably told some jokes. Jesus was born. He lived like us. But he was perfect because his father was God. And he's born of Mary. And they, the creed is specific to say that she's the virgin Mary. I mean, she had not been married. She had not been with the person. Why does that matter? What's the big deal? Why stick her in this creed? What's the big deal about this? Do we even need to believe this or not? Well, it connects to who Jesus' father is. If Mary had been married, then somebody else could have came around and be like, hey, no, that's my kid. That's my, Jesus guy. no, no, he's mine. There was no one else who could claim Jesus as his son. Only God. Jesus' father was God. And because he's born of Mary, he's still human. And you start to see, as they're putting this creed together, it's beautiful. You start to see that the conception by the Spirit in Mary allows Jesus to be fully God. He gets to be the Son of God. And he also becomes the Son of Man. But he doesn't have our sin. He doesn't have our issues. This creed is put together beautifully. And it's all... Right from here, it's all in these scriptures. So we know that we're who Jesus is. We know where he comes from, even though we can't fully comprehend it all. We know where he comes from. But what did he do? Jesus suffered. Our painting must depict Jesus' suffering. It says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, buried. He descended to hell. Pontius Pilate. There's three people named in this creed. Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. I mean, I kind of feel bad for Pilate because this guy gets named in the creed. And for all of history, he's just, he's just a bad dude. And, and maybe rightfully so. But it's, I still feel a little bit bad for him. But he's specifically named, why name Pilate? Why name a mid-level Roman leader over Palestine in the first century? Why does this guy get named? And there's probably a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons is it locks Jesus into this historical point in time. It connects Jesus to the Roman Empire. It brings some credibility because we have archaeological evidence for Pilate. It connects Jesus to something that really happened. See, we're not just telling this nice story about this guy named Jesus and his mythology about this crazy father and father. No, Jesus was real. Jesus was human. Jesus was the Son of God. He actually lived. He actually died. He actually rose again. He's actually changed the course of the world forever. This happened. And it happened in a specific time in the world. And Pontius Pilate was part of that. And it says that he suffered under Pilate. And I've been thinking about this, like, what is that? What does that mean? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? You really thought about that? Jesus laid his life down. No one took it. But let's set that aside for a second. Who's responsible for Jesus's death? History has blamed the Jews, and they've done 
atrocities to the Jewish people because of that. But the creed doesn't say that the Jews put Jesus to death. The creed says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. The creed says that he suffered under Rome. Jesus was crucified. The Jews would have stoned him, and they tried, but they missed because he was quick. Listen to this in Luke 23, verse 24. So Pilate granted their demand. The Sadducees had come to Jesus, had come, and they wanted Jesus' life. These are like, these are the high priests, the chief priests. These are like the mafia priest guys. They do not like Jesus. And, and it says that Pilate, he released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection. They released another guy, and he surrenders Jesus to their will. Pilate is the one who granted the demand to the Jews. Now, the Sadducees wanted to kill him. I'm not saying that they didn't want to kill him. They absolutely wanted him dead. But they couldn't do it. Or they could, and they didn't want to suffer the consequences for doing it. So they go to the guy who can do it. Pilate has the authority to release Jesus or to kill him. He knows that Jesus is innocent, if you've read the story. He knows that he is, and he still does it. And we see the clash of two kingdoms here. You see the clash of the kingdom of this world of Rome that says, oh, there's this innocent guy, but if I don't put him to death, people are going to get mad, and that's going to be bad for me. So, whatever. And you see Jesus, who represents this kingdom of peace, who says, I'm going to lay my innocent life down for other people. You see it hitting right here. This clash of kingdoms. Pilate could have kept Jesus alive, and he doesn't. Jesus suffers under Pilate. And it's really interesting because, right, ultimately, Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross. And it's this this symbol for the Roman Empire of, of power and authority. And if you mess with us, this is what happens to you, right? And 2,000 years later, we wear that same cross around our necks. We put it on our arms. And it's the sign of love and of peace and of redemption. It's a sign that Jesus' kingdom won. It just happened different than everybody thought it was going to happen. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And he was crucified. He, he died. He was buried. Like I said, crucifixion. This is, this is the Roman way of capital punishment. This is what you do to non-Romans. They put them on a cross. And it was meant to be agony. It was meant to be humiliation. This is what our Lord suffered for us. Like I said, the Jews would have stoned him according to the law. They would have, which sounds almost just as bad to me. They would have done that. The Romans would have crucified. Another connection to Rome. And Jesus dies. In John 19.30, it says that when Jesus had received the drink, this wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. The God-man, Jesus Christ, he actually died. Are you seeing kind of the, the way that they're stepping through the creed, the way that the scriptures tell the story? Jesus can't die if he's not born. If he's not born of God and of this woman, 
he can't have a physical, but he can't die. These things are all intimately connected. And there was all sorts of heresies and things in the early church that would say, well, Jesus kind of just seemed to be human. You know, he's kind of like a spirit that, like a hologram, but like a really good hologram, you know? And maybe when he got to the cross, he like turned into a hologram and whatever. The creed and the scriptures say, no, 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 no. Jesus was crucified and he died and he was actually buried. Jesus was buried. Burial is like this universal symbol for finality. You bury something that's died. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know the feeling of finality. You know that you've stepped into something and you cannot go back. I remember being at my mother's funeral. I remember the weight of something has changed that I cannot undo. I can't go back. This thing happened. And there's nothing that's going to change that. Can you imagine being the disciples watching their Savior die and they bury him? The hope that they that felt lost for them. Death is so final. Now, we know that there's resurrection. Thank God for resurrection. And we're going to get to that next week. But Jesus really died. Like, it really happened. And the creed is saying that is absolutely important because if there's no death, there's no resurrection. You can't resurrect something that didn't die. That word, that's just not even what that means. There has to be death. There has to be suffering for there to be resurrection. And then the last thing is he descends to hell. How many people got questions about that one? You're like, I know you guys do. We, we, like, we all read that part in the career like, and then, you know, he descended to hell. What? What does that mean? I was talking to somebody last week, and they're like, yeah, what does that mean? I was like, that's a good question. I got to figure it out within a week so I can present it to you guys. You know, I'd like to think, you know, you know, I don't know. It, Jesus is like Rambo going down this tunnel into hell. And he's like, that's not what I think happened. Although, you never know. Um, there's a lot of different, um, there's some different thoughts on it. I would say this. It's in the creed. And you'll find warrant for it in the scriptures. So it's in here for a reason. Okay? It's not like, oh, they just put this thing in here because we don't know what to do with it. It's been a really terrible idea to do. What I'd like to do is share, um, John Calvin writes about this, and I think what he puts out is really interesting for us to think about. Calvin says that Jesus descending to hell, that phrasing, could speak to the fact that Jesus spiritually suffered for us. So we've just, I've just been making this point that Jesus actually died. He physically died. On a cross, he was flogged, beaten. We've, we've, we've gone through this before. But Jesus was not the only person to ever die like that. He was crucified between two other people. People, thousands of people died in crucifixion. So it can't just be that Jesus experienced physical pain for us. That alone, because then that would mean that any of us could have endured that for the sake of other people. So something that Jesus went through was bigger than just physical pain. And Calvin talks about Jesus spiritually taking the weight of our sin and our shame and somehow bearing that 
and connected to this wrath that God would be pouring, have to pour out on us, right? We know that from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Somehow Jesus paid those wages. We can't know exactly what that was, but he experienced something on that cross. Think about it. When he's in the garden, he's praying. He says he's praised God if there's another way. There's another way to do this. I don't think it's just the physical pain. I think as the only begotten son of God, he knew something was coming his way. So the fact that he actually prayed that. And then he's on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think he's just quoting Psalm 22 because it's the right thing to do. He is feeling that. This is real for Jesus. And he somehow descends or takes on hell for us. That's who our Jesus is. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And then Calvin writes, and let me say this. My point is that redemption has come to us at an incredibly high price. We are sitting here today because Jesus paid the highest price for us. Not because he had to, but because he chose to, because he loves us. And Calvin says this, and, well, he's writing to people who apparently have different views than him, so he kind of gets a little bit, well, I'll just read it. It says this. From this it appears that these quibblers with whom I'm contending boldly chatter about things they know not of. <laughs> I just think it's funny. So kids, go look up quibbler, okay? That's your word of the day. But listen to this. For they have never earnestly considered what it is or means that we have been redeemed from God's judgment. Yet this is our wisdom, duly to feel how much our salvation costs the Son of God. Listen to that for us today. Our wisdom would be to think about this. How much our salvation costs the Son of God. It cost him so much. The Messiah, the King, the only Son of God, the Lord of all, whose father is God, whose mother was earthly so that he could take on flesh, who suffered under Rome, who was crucified, died, and buried. He did that. Have we ever considered what he did for us? It's incredible. So as I close, what does it mean to believe in the sun? We are like, think of this as like the tip of the iceberg. Like there is so much more to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And the creed is getting at some bare essentials that help us stay on track. But I would say this, believing in the sun means that we see Jesus as the pinnacle of God's story in all of history. Jesus is like the center point of everything. And he's at the center of this creed on purpose. That in and through Jesus, God's kingdom has come and life is forever changed because of what Jesus did. And I want to read this. The Apostle Paul, um, he's, he paints a really beautiful picture of Jesus. If we want to know what Paul thinks, if he was painting a picture of Jesus, this is what it would be. This is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. I want you to listen to this. Listen to this, the way he paints this. 
Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him, listen, to reconcile, to unify to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on a cross. That is the unifying, redemptive message of Jesus Christ. That is what this creed that we're looking at is talking about. That everything comes back to Jesus. Everything is for Jesus. Everything is through Jesus. Whichever way you go, you get Jesus. He's like a Rubik's Cube of Jesusness. To believe in Jesus means that we see Jesus as the person through which God is unifying everything. This picture that we're painting of Jesus has to have these things, has to have his kingship, has to have his sonship, has to have his lordship, has to understand who his father is, has to know that he's fully God and fully man, has to show what he did on this earth for us, that he suffered, that he was crucified, he died, was buried, that he descended into the worst parts of the world to suffer for our sake. That is what it means to believe in Jesus. That message, that's a unifying message that this world needs. That's the unifying message that our churches in America need. And that challenge for us today is that we get to go out and try to live that out. It's not easy, it's not simple, but gosh, I think it's really compelling. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that people centuries ago worked to put this incredible statement, this Apostles' Creed, together. And the Creed is just taking things from Scripture. The Creed is not the Scriptures. God, our trust is in you. It's not in a creed. It's not anything that humans can write. It's in you. It's in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we thank you that we can talk through this and be reminded of how absolutely incredible your scriptures are, how absolutely incredible your redemption is. And as we've tried to focus on the Son today, I want to just take a moment to think about how much you suffered for us. Jesus, you paid it all. Father, you gave your son, as we think about Father's Day, Father, you gave your son for us. So right now, we want to respond. We want to respond in gratefulness. We want to respond in worship. We want to proclaim your beautiful, your wonderful, and your powerful name, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.